On this edition of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, we talk to Cory Doctorow, who is a well-known and prolific science fiction author, activist, journalist, co-editor of Boing Boing, and consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We'll be talking about internet freedom, privacy in the age of surveillance capitalism, the EU copyright directive, and the Chinification of the internet. And before we get to Corey, let me just remind listeners that if you enjoy the podcast, please do us a simple favor and leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. And I'd like to thank a recent listener for their review of Geopolitics and Empire, calling the podcast top-notch and, quote, as a geography and public policy college student, this podcast has served as an excellent resource for analysis of the most important geopolitical topics in the world today. I especially enjoy the caliber of guests which are featured, end quote. And now to our guest. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Corey. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And, you know, there were a couple of themes I wanted to talk to you about, as I mentioned in the intro. But to set the stage, I wanted to mention how when I was in junior high school uh, in the USA in the mid-1990s, I got my first desktop computer, and it was such an amazing time on the internet. It was a completely open road, uh, open highway, total freedom, like the Wild West, and we had the freedom to explore every nook and cranny of the uncensored internet, no matter how weird it was. Um, but now, after some 20-odd years, things are taking a sharp kind of Orwellian turn, and we're seeing uh, sort of a breakdown of the global internet. Uh, China's walled off. I believe recent, recently Russia tested um, unplugging their country from the internet. The EU is putting up digital barriers uh, and so on. It's kind of looking like 1984's o Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. But before I ask you more about internet freedom, copyright, the Chinification of the internet, the theme of this podcast is geopolitics and empire. And I know perhaps it's not the primary theme that you write about, but I still would find your insight valuable. Uh, and I wanted to get your take on the military or security connections between the, the internet, government, and subsequently big tech. Uh, you know, there's some research that, research that points to Google and Facebook being seed funded by three-letter agencies. And recently, Yasha Levin uh, described how the internet has gone from... Um, well, he says that the American internet companies are not abstract global platforms, but privatized instruments of American geopolitical power. And I'm sure Russia and China leverage the internet the same way. So can you, do you have a comment on, on that? I don't know. I, I mean, I think we could do a whole podcast just on that subject. I mean, on the one hand, the fact that something has a military origin is not necessarily indicative of its destiny. I mean, crazy glue has a military origin as a field su su suture, but you know, I don't think that every time I, I glue a broken coffee cup together that I'm uh, somehow engaging with the military industrial complex. Um, but it is true that, you know, the U.S. has has had a, a long game of both soft and hard power and that um, in particular, you know, there is this explicit, totally not secret investment fund uh, that called Incutel that is a creature of the CIA that exists to fund uh, promising startups that have a national security dimension. And there's a ton of stuff that has emerged from that, that is both strategic for the CIA and also generally useful, including a bunch of machine vision and, and GIS services. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, it's, it's definitely the case that there's a symbiotic relationship between projects like mass surveillance and uh, and, and, uh, commercial surveillance that, you know, if you think back to say 1989, when, um, the Soviet union began to collapse, 
you know, the, the Stasi, the German secret police, these German secret police was the most prolific surveillance apparatus in the world. And, and they employed something like one in 60 East Germans in the snitching, uh, project. And they arguably weren't investing enough money because, uh, they missed the fact that the wall was about to come down and they all ended up out of a job and some of them, you know, in jail. And so presumably if, you know, the test of whether or not you're surveilling enough is if the thing that you're hoping to prevent is prevented and, and it wasn't now, uh, you know, if you go forward 25, 30 years to, to today, you've got the NSA surveilling effectively the whole planet at a ratio of something like one to 10,000 people instead of one to 60 people. And that two and a half order uh, of magnitude gain in efficiency is largely down to the proliferation of commercial surveillance platforms. That the, the fact that we buy phones and then pay the phone bills to generate the data that tracks us and, and that also maps out our social relationships and so on, that basically makes it cost effective to undertake these, these global surveillance projects uh, and, and it's a kind of, you know, democratic market equivalent to uh, the, the Cultural Revolution when the Chinese state would kidnap your father, put a bullet through his head and send you a bill for the for the bullet. You know, we get spied on all the time and we pay our phone bills. Uh, and, you know, it's it's not as immediately dangerous. But I, I think that um, there have been plenty of people who've been ensnared in this for whom it was just as consequential as being executed in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and, um, and, and so, to the extent that we hope that our states are going to be wise moderators of the power of the platforms, they have this, this deep conflict of interest where uh, preserving the surveilling capability of the platforms is absolutely essential to preserving their own surveilling capability. And speaking of the state being able to regulate uh, these big tech uh, companies, uh, people are now talking about breaking up uh, Facebook uh, and Amazon. And we have this problem now of their business models, uh, as you've mentioned, and this surveillance capitalism, our consumer rights, uh, our privacy. And uh, you've talked about the problem of the lack of uh, antitrust and the, this monopolization. And as an American, I've always admired our antitrust history of breaking up Standard Oil back in the day and AT&T. Um, and as I mentioned, we had a good competitive, I think, free market run of the internet for 20 years, but now we're veering toward this kind of oligarchy and mo uh, monopoly capitalism. So uh, what are your thoughts here? Well, I think that it's a mistake to assume that this is uh, a problem of tech as opposed to a problem of, of capitalism itself. You know, um, tech is coterminal with the growth of neoliberal capitalism. You know, the, the first, um, you know, commercial PC, the Apple II Plus, the first successful PC, uh, came into existence while Ronald Reagan was on the campaign trail. And, you know, effectively, Reagan's first act when he takes office is to enact radical reforms of antitrust law uh, along lines suggested by this, this fabulous extremist called Robert Bork, who's probably best known today for failing to get Senate confirmation for a seat on the Supreme Court. And Bork made up a completely fictional legislative history of antitrust law in which uh, the Sherman Act was not, was not created by a Congress that was worried about monopolies. Uh, that Congress's only goal was to prevent tangible consumer harms in the form of high prices. And that if you were creating a monopoly, but you didn't immediately raise prices on consumers, you were not violating antitrust law. And this bizarre theory that's, you know, sort of wrong on its face, 
um, became a darling of a global neoliberal movement and was something that uh, found a, a fertile uh, home in Canada under Brian Mulroney and in the UK under Margaret Thatcher and in the US under Reagan. And, you know, 40 years later, it's true that big tech has become incredibly monopolized. As they say, you know, there was a time when the internet didn't just consist of five giant services filled with screenshots from the other four. And that day is long behind us. But it's not just big tech, right? Uh, you know, logistics and shipping down to two or three companies, DHL, FedEx, uh, and, and UPS. Uh, farm equipment down to a couple of companies. Seed down to a couple of companies. Energy, um, um, steel, uh, you know, uh, rail, automotive. Very famously now, since John Oliver did a segment on it, we're down to one professional wrestling league, down from dozens of them 30 years ago. And that professional wrestling league's owner is worth $3.5 billion. He gives lavishly to people like Donald Trump, who promised to continue eroding antitrust laws. And uh, he gets, because there's no competition, he gets to class his workers as contractors. He doesn't give them medical insurance. And that's why professional wrestlers are dropping dead in their 40s and 50s and have to use GoFundMe to raise the money to die with dignity. And so, you know, I, I think that if this were about something like the unique power of surveillance capitalism or the unique benefits of network effects or the unique uh, benefits of first mover advantage or, or, or any of those other things that people say are why tech got so concentrated, then tech would be more concentrated than everyone else. But tech is just middling concentrated. And tech's leaders, they're not, they're not worse than everyone else. They're just as bad as everyone else. You know, everyone has got good and bad nature in them, and firms are liable to capture by the selfish as well as by the noble. And, uh, you know, when there is no competition, particularly the selfish gain ground, because being selfish and corrupt is more profitable, provided that your customers can't take their business elsewhere. And so we see this in every single industry. And I wanted to look at some of the the places where tech is going uh, wrong. Um, we're looking at now. I think somebody did a did a study about content creators, independent content creators on on YouTube, and how you know they help build the platform. And it now seems they're being marginalized, and how traditional uh, media is now becoming more prominent uh, on YouTube. And then this idea of the Chinification uh, of the internet. So we all know how the system is in, in China, the Great Firewall. They have this kind of dystopian sesame credit uh, system straight out of uh, the TV show Black Mirror. Uh, and it seems like this is also slowly finding its way uh, into the West. There's uh, Andrew Yang, I think, the U.S. presidential candidate who has proposed some kind of social credit system to be used in New York. Uh, U.S. tech companies seem to be deplatforming some uh, voices of dissent from both the left uh, and the right. And we see the EU copyright directive uh, seemingly laying down a digital iron curtain. I'm here in Kazakhstan where there is light censorship of the internet and mobile communications. Uh, and in New Zealand, after these, this recent uh, terror attack, um, they've passed some of these laws that I guess can get you in jail for posting certain things uh, online. So where do you see all of this going? Well, yeah, I mean, th there's an element of like being the, the old lady who swallows the spider to catch the fly and then having to swallow a bird to catch the spider. So in allowing the firms to become so big, we have uh, and allowing them to monopolize their sectors, right, by buying all their competitors. You know, if you look at, say, Facebook, 
uh, Facebook lost uh, 15 million users, mostly age 13 to 34 last year in America, but they all ended up on Instagram. And, you know, prior to the, the borkification of antitrust, Facebook wouldn't have been allowed to buy Instagram. You know, you, people would have been able to express their preferences by taking their business elsewhere. So now that there's really only one place where everyone goes, you know, and you have, you have for example, Facebook with 2.3 billion users, you have this chaos where firms can't effectively police their users' activities. And the mistakes that they make are so consequential that they uh, spark a demand that something be done but because it's outside of our Overton window to imagine making them smaller so that, for example, there isn't one place where a terrorist can stream an attack that 2.3 billion people can see it. And there isn't one search engine whose choices about who goes on the front page effectively ends up determining what we believe to be true. And there isn't one social platform where if you're harassed, you either stay and be a part of the conversation and bear the harassment or leave and be banished from the public eye. You know, because we're not willing to consider that breakup we end up with these other proposals that that fall into a kind of syllogism. You know, something must be done. Okay, now I've done something. Uh, you know, a little like the the post 9-11 measures of taking off our shoes or or any of the other things that we've done since then that have had no real meaningful effect on aviation security. And and this something must be done there, I've done something thinking, often manifests itself in the form of a very high set of compliance burdens for the existing platforms which are often cheered on by critics of big tech who are like, well, if Facebook has to spend $100 million to protect copyright, I'm glad of it because anything that punishes Facebook is okay with me. Those guys are terrible. But the reality is that Facebook, for example, implementing the EU's copyright filters, which will cost hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, the very minimal analog to it that, that YouTube built content ID was $100 million, and it does a tiny fraction of what the copyright directive contemplates. If, if if Facebook does spend that, the one thing that they can be guaranteed is that they're never going to have to worry about competition from a European firm because there just aren't any European companies with hundreds of millions of euros to spend on copyright filters. And so with no competition, Facebook and Google and the other big platforms are only going to become more abusive and they're going to have more influence on policy outcomes because one of the things about concentrated industries is that they lobby really well. Um, you know, when, when everyone who runs an industry can fit around a single boardroom table, as they did after the inauguration, when all of big tech's leaders gathered at Trump Tower and literally fit around one modestly sized boardroom table in, in Trump Tower, um, then they can collude, right? Thousands of people have a hard time colluding. Half a dozen people find it pretty straightforward to, to forge their common interests. This is one of the reasons that you see telecoms making such enormous gains, despite the obvious incorrectness of allowing them to practice network discrimination and the widespread popular support for network neutrality, you know, they, they present a united front. No one defects from telecoms when the regulator gathers them to ask them what the best rule is. And with that united front, they get better policy outcomes that they favor more. And so, you know, this is the thing that we're getting with big tech is this uh, um, willingness to bind them to perform these state-like duties that banish all competitors. And these state-like duties, because they're, they're uh, asking for the impossible, right, for, for a, uh, a thoughtful review of every word, picture, video, audio clip, code snippet, and Minecraft skin emitted by 2.3 billion people, um, then, you know, what you end up with is kind of an, uh, the nearest equivalent 
which is the thoughtless machine-based automated review of all of that speech. And, and you know, the, the outcome of that is that uh, millions and millions of acts of legitimate expression end up getting suppressed either deliberately or accidentally. So, you know, deliberately um, Facebook and YouTube have taken to removing evidence of terrorist atrocities, even though these, those uh, same videos and still images are widely used by open source investigators who gather data on the perpetrators of human rights crimes that are then used by prosecutors to bring the perpetrators to justice. And then inadvertently, um, we see lots and lots of instances in which things that are not infringements or not illegal get swept up in these automated uh, dragnets. You know, so uh, for example, if you are criticizing a book and you include its cover, you might have your post taken down, even though that's a legitimate use of the work. Um, more recently on Boing Boing, the website I co-own, we had a takedown notice for the cover of a book that had been posted to advertise an event that we were doing to promote that book. Uh, and it was just sent automatically by Amazon's service. Uh, it was an Amazon self-published book that one of my co-editors uh, was a great booster of and wanted to help promote. And so she did a, an event with the, uh, with the person who uh, created the book. Um, and so, you know, these automated systems end up taking down huge amounts of content. And uh, it, the criteria on which they're being asked to block content are getting wider and wider and more and more abstract. So things like the um, images of the sexual abuse of children are relatively unambiguous. Uh, but there's still some ambiguity around the edges. You know, we've seen those filters that are supposed to remove that, those images used to remove the iconic photo of the young Vietnamese girl running away naked from a, a napalm attack on her village. Um, we saw it used to take down the cover of an album by a rock and roll band uh, and ended up uh, blocking all of Wikipedia in the UK briefly and so on. But, but for all that, it's still a pretty narrow category with pretty well-defined contours Compare that to something like copyright infringement, or even more broadly, extremist content, or even more broadly, hate speech. These are things that reasonable people disagree about all the time, but also that um, computers are really, really bad at figuring out. You know, it, can a computer tell if you're using a racial slur because you are a member of that, of that racial group who was rec recounting an incident in which you were verbally harassed, and you're saying, this is what that policeman called me and someone using the slur in order to actually victimize someone else on the service. You know, software is not only no uh, incapable of doing it. Software is like nowhere near capable of making those fine grained determinations. Like it's, 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 um, an absolute fantasy to think that we could ever build software in the foreseeable future that could make those distinctions. And, and so what you end up with is this, ever widening constellation of criteria that we're filtering speech for, even as the internet is becoming more concentrated because only a small number of firms can afford to implement those filters. And, and even as it's becoming more consequential for our lives, you know, the internet is absorbing uh, every activity that we do, you know, right now, everything we do involves the internet. And it's pretty clear that very soon, everything we're going to we do is going to require the internet. And so to be eroding the internet sort of democratic control and also its openness, which is already, you know, too narrow by far, um, even as it's becoming more important, it's a, just a recipe for disaster.
if um, there are, if there is no uh, anti, if antitrust doesn't happen to break up some of uh, the monopoly power, I mean, what are some alternatives? Do we go to alternate platforms? Uh, I mean, what, what do people do? Well, I think, you know, this may not be the most popular view with people who, who are on my side, but I think alternate platforms are dead in the water until and unless we can make an important change in our in our rules. So when you look at the history of minority platforms that have succeeded, um, what you find is that inevitably in that history, there's something called adversarial interoperability. So think of when when the Mac was this minority platform whose share price, you know, whose parent company share price was in the toilet, uh, and that um, was very, very hard to use because everyone you needed to collaborate with couldn't read or write the files that you made, and vice versa. And Apple had this switch campaign in 2002 where they said, you know, apples are much easier to use than you think, and if you if you switch to macOS, you'll still be able to talk to your friends on Windows. Uh, and then they they threw a ton of engineering resources into reverse engineering Microsoft's crown jewels, the um, the uh, uh, Office suite, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and they made their equivalent um, uh, sheet or numbers, uh, pages, and Keynote. Uh, and these programs they read and write Microsoft's file formats. Um, and even though Microsoft kind of played dirty afterwards and continued to change these file formats to break compatibility, Apple just tasked enough engineers to the project that every time Microsoft broke the experience of Mac users and their Windows collaborators, Apple unbroke it really quickly with a set of patches. And after a while, there were so many Microsoft users who were dependent on Apple compatibility because they sat up or downstream from someone who used a Mac for document creation, that every time Microsoft broke Mac compatibility, um, they punished Windows users, not Mac users. And Microsoft was eventually cornered and had to basically cut it out. And today, we don't think anything of the fact that you can use Google Docs or Apple's uh, application suite or uh, LibreOffice, uh, which used to be called OpenOffice, or Microsoft's Office products, and that the documents just more or less seamlessly interchange. It's been years, for example, since I sent a, a LibreOffice document to my publisher and had them say, I'm sorry, I can't make any sense of this. You know, they're a Windows shop with a bunch of Mac machines that are used for, for layout. Uh, I use Linux, and we just all talk to each other with no problems. And, and that adversarial interoperability carried over through the story of the internet. So, you know, very famously, search engines routinely impersonated different kinds of browsers to foil the attempt of websites to show search engines different uh, versions of their pages uh, based on uh, whether or not this was a human being or a search engine crawler showing them, sometimes to elude indexing, sometimes to uh, corrupt the indexing so that they would get a higher search rank. And Google and Microsoft and even AltaVista and their earlier precursors, they all developed ways of impersonating browsers so that the website would not know that they were being indexed by, by um, uh, search engines. And then, you know, Facebook, when they launched, they had this huge problem which was that everybody who might be a Facebook user was already a MySpace user, and they didn't want to start using Facebook until all their friends on MySpace were also using Facebook. This kind of collective action problem is often present in, in new technology, and it's what's sometimes called the network effect problem because every new user on Facebook makes Facebook more valuable, and uh, until uh, you have a, a critical mass of users on a new platform, that platform is effectively valueless. 
And um, the the way that Facebook resolved this problem of, of MySpace's indomitable lead was by devising a tool that allowed Facebook users to automatically have their MySpace messages brought into their Facebook inbox. It was, a, it was an impersonation tool that would pretend to be them to MySpace's service and bring in their waiting messages, let them reply to those messages, and then push the replies back out to MySpace. And this converted MySpace's advantage of incumbency into a disadvantage because now you had one place where every possible Facebook user had been conveniently gathered and organized by Facebook's largest rival. And Facebook could make a tool to liberate those people from MySpace and bring them into Facebook without making them choose between Facebook or MySpace. They could live in both worlds. Now, within a few years of that, Facebook actually sued a competitor of theirs called Power Ventures that built exactly the same tool. They advanced a radical theory of the, uh, the interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. They paid a lot of money to get law review professors to, or law review articles written that supported this theory. They hired some very good lawyers. The world had become a lot more concentrated, and we were much more comfortable with the idea that some firms are too big to fail and they shouldn't be challenged. And, and you know, long story short, Facebook changed the way that law is interpreted so that no one can ever do to Facebook what Facebook did to them. And so you take a minority platform today like um, uh, uh, Mastodon, which is basically a Twitter clone, and Mastodon federates. So each person or group of people runs their own Mastodon servers with their own house rules, and people can link them up, and I can read your Mastodon server through my account, and you can read mine through your account, and we can either federate together or, or disaggregate so we can have lots of different Mastodon networks. And there's no reason you couldn't read Mastodon through Twitter. In fact, Mastodon's API is based on the old Twitter API, which Twitter subsequently shut down, um, except that Twitter doesn't allow you to. And so you have to make a choice. Do you want to be on Twitter or do you want to be on Mastodon or do you want to answer two social telephones? And most people just end up sticking with Twitter, even though there's lots of reasons not to like Twitter. Right? And there are lots of people who would like to be able to stay in touch with their friends on Twitter, but not be bound to using Twitter warts and all, for whom Mastodon federated with Twitter, Mastodon as a Twitter reading app, would be an incredibly powerful value proposition. But there is no future for Mastodon without that kind of interoperability. Right? N no one is going, to, is going to make that leap. Right? It, it's, it's, um, it's a collective action problem with no easy solution. And, and maybe we could have some kind of pledge bank thing where, you know, I say I will leave Twitter forever once a million of my friends, you know, once every one of my follower list or 80% of my follower list leaves too, and I could automatically link that into every one of my Twitter posts or something like that. But, you know, ultimately, that's a, that's a, a, a very roundabout way of doing it. And, it. and it really elides like the best tool that we have for correcting anti-competitive behavior which is just, you know, non-consensually breaking into incumbents' tools to allow users to continuously access the parts of them they like without being bound inside of them. And restoring that, even if we don't restore antitrust, would be a huge step forward. And I wanted to ask you about, uh, well, our individual uh, privacy uh, online, what you think going forward are some of the biggest dangers for us uh, uh, as individuals. Uh, recently, I was reading Bruce Schneier, and he posted 
Um, quote, he said, there's nothing we can do to protect our data from being stolen by cyber criminals and others. Ten years ago, I could have given you all sorts of advice about encryption, not sending information over email, securing your web connections and the host of other things, but most of that doesn't matter anymore. Today, your sensitive data is controlled by others and there's nothing you can personally do to affect its uh, security. It sounds like a bit of security um, nihilism, but uh, I believe you recently wrote in Boing Boing that two-factor authentication is remarkably helpful and you've said that crypto works uh, and I've I recently listened to an interview by NSA whistleblower Bill Binney who has warned not to use some commercial crypto which may have back doors but to create your own. So, uh, Oy. I did not hear Bill say that. That is terrible advice. I mean, all due respect to Bill, that is unbelievably terrible advice. Don't make your own crypto. I mean, that's like, it's, so the thing is that, in fact, what it's like is like making your own crypto. Like that is the thing that we, you know, oftentimes when people say like, oh, I want to perform my own brain surgery, we say, oh, what are you going to do next? Make your own crypto. Uh, the thing about crypto is that um, it only works if the implementation is sound. And we don't have an experimental methodology for determining a priori whether something is sound. What we have to do is subject it to adversarial review where people try to break it. And they spend years and years trying to break it. And if they can't break it, we provisionally call it secure. Um, it's not the case every time that it's secure. You know, very famously, there's this thing, Heartbleed, where we had OpenSSL, which was a, an open, free, key security infrastructure uh, tool that um, just no one had audited carefully enough to notice that it had these giant showstopper bugs for years and years and years in it. But like nobody argues that OpenSSL would be more secure if every person made their own SSL libraries and uh, and then um, you know fielded them themselves, right? Like that, or or kept them proprietary so no one could look at them to make sure you hadn't made any dumb mistakes. I mean, don't make mistakes is not a plan, right? Don't make mistakes is an aspiration that you arrive at or that you realize by allowing people to find the mistakes you've made, not by, not by just assuming that if you've committed to not making mistakes, no mistakes will be present. Um, and I, I think that we can resolve Bruce's uh, advice and my own uh, or my own feeling um, by understanding the, the nuance between them. So I was quoting this uh, Google uh, security research paper that they presented and, and published in which they, they showed that in the real world, a bunch of pretty common measures, even measures with known attacks against them, worked surprisingly well to prevent uh, most kinds of account takeover attacks. So for example, um, if you just use two-factor authentication, even the weak two-factor authentication where you get SMSed a uh, uh, six-digit code when you try to set up a new account on a new device, that is effective at stopping 100% of automated attacks most uh, targeted, uh, um, uh, manually, manual attacks, not targeted attacks, and, and uh, a large number of targeted attacks as well. And then when you use in-app verification like uh, Google Authenticator or Authy, you get much more security. It, it goes up to like 100%, 100%, and like 90%. And, um, uh, you know, so this is, like, this is like an incredibly effective set of tools at preventing account takeovers. And I think Bruce would agree with, with that conclusion. In fact, I might even found the study on his blog. The issue that Bruce is raising is that while this will prevent people from taking over your account without the cooperation of the platform that's holding your data, what this doesn't do is stop the people who work for that platform or who own it 
from abusing your data. And so it stops the system from working unintentionally against your privacy, but there are many ways in which the system is designed to intentionally deprive you of your privacy. And um, that is a matter of both uh, regulation and competition. So some of these systems we know are designed to prevent us uh, from from having privacy. Um, and, you know, we we strive to find ways to overcome that. But ultimately, it's it's very hard, right? There's not really any any competition. They're often the only game in town. And you just got to you know, take what you're given. And so on the one hand, if there was better regulation, you know, including antitrust rules that that would force them to split up, but also rules making them liable for uh, uh, capturing the full damages in a breach. You know, oftentimes when a, comp- when a company breaches your data, they're only liable for actual damages. So you have to show that you lost money after your data was leaked. And oftentimes that mon- monetary loss comes a long way down the line um, in combination with other breaches. So, you know, we, uh, the um, people who are weaponizing a breach will take data from that one company leaked about you and merge it with data that another company leaked about you and use that to, for example, answer your secret questions in an authentication system or to derive your home address or to de-anonymize an anonymized data set and then blackmail you or attack you in some other way. And so, um, you know, this, this like probabilistic or stochastic form of damage is not one that our courts recognize in privacy even though it's one that they recognize in many other domains. Like if, if, you know, if you leak dioxin into the drinking water, we don't know who's going to get cancer from that dioxin, but we know people are getting cancer and we fine you accordingly, right? We don't say, well, you know, you'll have to pay for anyone who is uh, upset enough about dioxin that they buy a Brita filter, right? We say you're going to have to pay for uh, the probability that a certain number of people who live in this water basin are going to end up with with uh, terrible cancer, and your fine is going to reflect that. And um, you know, we could easily do that with privacy breaches. You know, when Home Depot leaked 80 million users' credit card uh, numbers, we find them about 35 cents per user, and 10 uh, a third of that, 10 cents per user, went towards a voucher for free credit monitoring services. And instead, we might have found them like, say, 1% of the real estate holdings of all of the users that were breached on the grounds that, you know, about 1% of them are going to end up losing their houses eventually because of that breach. And, and that would really severely constrain the kind of data collection that firms engage in. But really, you know, like it's, it's inconceivable that we'll get those kinds of rules for so long as the industry is so concentrated that they lobby and they speak with one voice and also that they're so profitable that they have all this money left over to, to lobby. Because one of the things about very um, uh, concentrated industries is that the firms within them command what economists call uh, monopoly rents, right? Facebook is posting between like 55 and 37% year-on-year growth in revenues um, because they don't have any competitors eroding their their most profitable lines of work. Um, If they were posting, you know, 6% profits and 1% annual growth, they wouldn't be able to afford the kind of lobbying operations that they engage in to prevent uh, anyone from ever making them liable for the kinds of damages that are incurred when breaches uh, are inevitably take place. Before I ask uh, you about the, your science fiction, is there any final thought uh, you leave us with, whether it's regarding the EU copyright directive or the future uh, and the fight for internet uh, freedoms? Well, 
You know, I'd say that that the the most exciting thing on the horizon right now is the idea that a that a lot of different constituencies who are fighting over a lot of different things are all recognizing that they're fighting different aspects of the same problem, this this market concentration problem. There's a, a copyright professor and scholar named James Boyle at Duke University who talks about the advent of the term ecology and what an enormous effect it had on the um, perception of uh, what was at stake and on the efficacy of the people who were fighting to improve uh, the quality of our environment. So before the term ecology was coined, there were people who cared about saving old growth forests and there were people who cared about saving whales and there were people who cared about freshwater drinking water quality and there were people who cared about air quality and so on. But they didn't all really understand how they were fighting the same fight. They couldn't make the connection between them. There wasn't a word that uh, grouped all of these disparate fights into one domain. And the advent of the term ecology was a radical game changer because it put all of these people on the same side. So, you know, I will help you fight to save whales because I know you will help me fight to save the ozone layer. Even though, you know, you care about whales for your reasons and I care about ozone for my reason, we understand that we're all on the same side. And, you know, increasingly, there are people who are worried about the fact that their insulin now costs a thousand percent more than it did 10 years ago. And they're having to make choices about whether they're going to go blind or whether they're going to starve to death because they can't afford enough insulin to keep themselves healthy. And there are people who care about the fact that their family farm is now totally beholden to John Deere. And John Deere is non-consensually extracting data about their crops from them and selling it into the futures market and won't let them fix their own tractors and so on. And there are people who care about market concentration because they're professional wrestling fans. And the people that they love are dying slow, humiliating deaths because there's only one league and they can't get justice out of it. And there are people who care about market concentration in big tech. And we are starting to all wake up and recognize that we're all on the same side, that this is not a fight about whether Apple has one app store. And it's not a fight about whether there are only, uh, you know, three places that you can sell the hogs that you raise to who have uh, made the prices bottom out so that you're starving to death so that you can feed your pigs. Um, and, uh, you know, this common cause has the potential to make change where these atomized fights didn't, right? It, it, you know, we are more powerful together than we are separately. I think that's good news. Um, and I've followed your work in the journalist uh, and activist realm, but I have never read your science fiction. I, myself, I'm a big fan of science fiction, and I guess I'll have to read your books now. You're prolific. Yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah, yeah. And um, I've I've listened to some of your interviews where you, exp you explain some of the stories, and they sound really hilarious, uh, very original, and thought provoking. And can you just tell us a bit about uh, the work you do in science fiction? Yeah, I write science fiction novels, among other things, uh, short stories, novellas, and so on. Um, the, you know, some of them are young adult books and, and some of them are books for adults. Uh, I actually just got the proofs for my first picture book for, for small children. Uh, and, um, I've also had some middle grades, graphic novels out and so on. Uh, the, the latest book is called radicalized. It's four novellas, uh, that, you know, if they have like a summary, it would be maybe something like this will all be so great if we don't screw it up, which is really how I feel about tech. And so, you know, there are a mix of stories about people 
seizing the means of computation and achieving a kind of technological self-determination and making their lives much better, and people who are unable to pull that off, and as a result, their lives are much worse. So, you know, the, the, the first story in it is called Unauthorized Bread, and it's being made into a TV show by Topic, the people who, who published The Intercept. And um, the, uh, the premise is that uh, people who are living in refugee housing, subsidized refugee housing, uh, are trapped in a kind of Internet of Things nightmare where all of the appliances in their homes are designed to extract as much revenue as possible from them. So, you know, the toaster will only toast authorized bread that's identified by an optical sensor on the front of the toaster. And that requires that you buy all your bread from from one company that charges a huge premium for it. Likewise, the dishwasher only washes authorized dishes and the washing machine will only uh, wash authorized clothing. And, you know, this is bad enough, but the firms that make these uh, go out of business because they're owned by sleazy hedge funds that financially engineer, you know, all these debt bombs that that drive them into bankruptcy. And then all the appliances stop working altogether. And the people in the building, rather than just accepting that, that they no longer have working appliances, they go on the dark net. They figure out how to jailbreak their devices. And they enter a kind of golden age in which they have total control over, over all of these technologies in their lives to their enormous betterment. But then the firms that, that um, made these appliances restructure out of bankruptcy, and the people in the building realize that if they don't restore their, their devices to factory defaults, they face the risk of being discovered by the device telemetry, and that would be a felony under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And then because they're uh, refugees, committing a felony could result in their deportation. And since they were fleeing certain death, being deported could cost them their lives. And so the stakes get very high. And it becomes a kind of fight between the people who uh, first engineered this, this woman, Salima, who's a Libyan refugee, and the young children of the building who were her kind of army of, of Baker Street irregulars who she taught to do the jailbreaking and who've been, uh, you know, seizing the means of computation and realizing the, the power of being in charge of your technological destiny and who are unwilling to compromise and restore everything back to its factory defaults. And it's a story about this very high stakes way that um, the unexpected consequences of uh, cabining people's behavior with technological controls can spin out of control and, and become life or death matters where, um, you know, people's uh, willingness to submit to control by, by third parties uh, becomes more than a matter of human dignity, but, but also a matter of, of just your freedom. I hope the future doesn't look uh, anything like that. And when I said very original, well, uh, I, I meant it because I've never heard any any, uh, any plot line uh, like that. And finally, where can people best find you online? Well, I'm usually pretty easy to find. You know, if you type Corey into Google, I'm usually the first result, C-O-R-Y. Um, I'm Dr. O on Twitter, and I'm one of the owners of a website called Boing Boing at boingboing.net, which is a sort of daily tech, culture, and politics site. Uh, my personal site is at craphound.com, crap like poop, hound like dog. And, uh, although all of my books are published by Macmillan, uh, through Tor, which is the largest science fiction publisher in the world, you can also buy them from me as, as eBooks without any digital rights management, without any license agreement. And, uh, I get the money that Amazon would normally take. And then I send the remainder to, uh, to my publisher who then takes my royalty share and sends it back to me. Uh, all the books are there as well as audiobooks. Um, Will Wheaton reads several of my audiobooks. He's a very, very good reader. Uh, and um, yeah, there you go.
I would also recommend people check out the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I'm a, I'm a fan mm -hmm. uh, of what the work they do. And again, thanks for your time and, and the work that you do. Oh, well, thank you very much. It was absolutely my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.